Welcome to Tell Me More. I'm Luke Stair, filling in for Katie while she's on leave. We are so excited that you're with us today. We have a fun conversation for you about John the Baptist and the meta narrative of scripture and just how God is at work providentially through history and what that looks like both on a grand cosmic scale and just on a very human level. Uh, we hope this conversation uh, enhances your understanding of scripture and we look forward to continuing the dialogue with you. Well, welcome to another episode of Tell Me More. We had a really great Sunday talking about John the Baptist, and now we're here to talk about it some more. That's right. Um, so, it's, December's just a fun month in the it life is, of our church. It is. Somebody asked me today, how was Sunday? Did you have a good Sunday? And I said, you know, if you can't have good Sundays in Advent, I don't I don't know what to say. <laughs> so, yes, right. it was an awesome day in it a was. lot of ways. It was. It really was. I mean— Worship was beautiful mm -hmm. in both services. Mm -hmm. We had cookies and a nativity story with <laughs> a very chaotic and fun group of preschoolers and oh, children. Yeah. Lord help us. Yeah. So you was, had the pastor lead the music, so that lets you know where we were from you know, the preschoolers. You know what I mean? It was good. <laughs> it was good. Oh, man. Oh, man. Well, you know, we just— you just dropped a few big concepts on us on Sunday, so I think we just have a, routine a few Sunday, things ordinary Sunday. to unpack. Yeah, yeah. Um, you you casually threw out this word. That's a very big word, right? And it's meta narrative. Right. And I was wondering if you could talk to us more about what that word means. You use this example that meta narrative can be this thing that justifies an agenda, mm -hmm. uh, and that isn't always what we mean when we talk about it right. in the biblical studies or even philosophical sense. Right. Because it, it's a word that it's, as I said Sunday morning, it's a, it's, it's a little bit of a lightning rod word because people use the meta narrative, the big story, if you will, um, to justify sometimes incredibly egregious behavior. The example I gave Sunday morning was if your meta narrative is white supremacy or, or even maybe um, a certain race. I mean, think about it. Hitler had a meta narrative. You know, mm -hmm. as evil as he was, he had a big story he thought he was connected to. Well, look at what it led to, you know, massive genocide, um, political, military domination. So um, sometimes that meta narrative can be used to uh, just excuse immoral, unethical behavior. So I was a little nervous about using it. I did a little research on it because there are several people who I read who said, okay, quit you theologians, quit using meta narrative. It's been misused. But the problem is it's actually a good word because it it really is what I think the Bible's all about. It's, right. it's relaying to us this grand story. And it overlays everything, I believe. And so to me, I wanted us to as a as a church to first of all, I, of course we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. <laughs> I mean, we're, and I want us to prepare to do that, but at the same time, it needs to be connected to the story that it actually fits in. You know, mm -hmm. so that's why I wanted to introduce that concept. We've talked about it before; it's been a long time ago. But um, just to help our people think through the fact that God was at work here, you know, um, even in the telling of the Christmas story to the preschoolers Sunday afternoon, uh, I, I was thinking, Cindy and I were talking about it, and. Um, I said, you know, normally when I tell the Christmas story, I don't start with Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
you know. But Luke did. Yeah, and I thought, you know, shame on me. I should because this this story is connected to them and their faithfulness and then certainly their son and the role he played. And so the story does begin there. If you want to – I mean, it begins maybe way earlier, but still – It begins in the garden. Yeah, it's a great way to, to – I think to segue into that conversation. And so just connecting this to a, a grander narrative and, and then connecting your life as well to it is kind of what I'm hoping we're going to – to do as we continue to have these conversations over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. What I like, I mean, there's so many things to dive into with this word meta narrative. When you mm-hmm. said it, I was sitting there listening, and the word I thought of from my theological training is a German word, and it's called Heilsgeschichte, right. uh, which just means salvation history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think sometimes that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. We're talking about what is the history of salvation? Mm-hmm. What is mm-hmm. this overarching meta narrative mm-hmm. of salvation? And met, yeah, the word meta has so many connotations. I was going to say, <laughs> it's a you know, complicated what, word. It was now. funny is I didn't even think about that Sunday morning how some of our younger folks in our church hear the word meta, and, and well, now it's been somewhat co-opted, you know, culturally, and uh, you know, Facebook or whatever, and it's just used in a lot of other ways, but. I didn't even think about that till church was over Sunday. I thought, I wonder what some of our people were thinking. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, but yeah, you're right. When I was in seminary, um, you know, preparing for my PhD work, we had to do theological German. You know, I had to do two years of theological German. And uh, uh, es ist so Spaß. <laughs> yes, I, I would I would tease my friends. That's my Heilsgeschichte is my favorite word uh, that came out of that study. But uh, but just this idea of this holy history that God is is at work in this grand plan of redemption because he is and it's 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 uh, it's worth us i think just reflecting on it and i i hope it's given our people this week something to think about about what's really what has been happening what has happened but also what's continued to happen so yeah you know. what i liked about what you said is you tied elizabeth and zachariah to abraham and ultimately, I mean, some scholars even point to this, that there's a sense in which Elizabeth and Zechariah are kind of a a connection to the story of Abraham mm-hmm. and this pronouncement, you're going to have a child. But this time, instead of the woman laughing and rejecting the idea, yeah. Elizabeth takes it seriously. She does. Zechariah takes it seriously. They believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's credited to them as righteousness. Right. They're credited mm-hmm. as righteous people. Mm-hmm. And throughout Scripture— I think sometimes we can forget that Jesus is this culmination of the entire Old Testament. And you talked about the passage he reads from in Isaiah in Luke 4, mm-hmm. and that it's this not only a connection to the prophet Isaiah, but Isaiah in that passage is a connection to Leviticus and Deuteronomy right. with Jubilee. That's right. And so Jesus comes and he's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, which in the Old Testament is Jubilee, this mm-hmm bringing of land, the forgiveness of debts, mm-hmm. and its restoration. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is this culmination. Mm-hmm. It's kind of where the, the law and the prophets merge. And and I, I think that's, to me, one of the one of the most monumental moments in the ministry life of Jesus is that moment, for him to read that text and then sit down. And say, it's fulfilled today. today. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I mean, as I said, that if there was ever a mic drop moment, surely that's it for Jesus. I just wonder <laughs> yes. how, you know, and, I, and that's why I was trying to, I was trying to tell it in a way not to be disrespectful, but to where people could understand it, that this is a boy that grew up there. They all knew him. It wasn't like this was some visiting evangelist. You know, this boy had, 
as I said, they'd seen him, you know, going to the market, picking up groceries. They changed for his, his diapers. Groceries. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, they knew him. And, and now he's telling them, you've been waiting. I've listened to sermons on this, I'm sure. Here I am. Here it is. <laughs> it's awesome. I just it love is. Jesus. Oh my goodness. But uh, but I also love the 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 intimate human story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. It is so human. Yeah, brought right into this cosmic drama. You know, here's this couple, childless, um, disappointed. Um, and even and I think it's even a little interesting when Gabriel says, God has heard your prayer. I wonder what Zechariah's first thought was. Is he talking about— like 30 years too late, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Or or is he talking about my <laughs> prayer right now here in the temple? I've just been here praying for—are you talking about that? Or it's like Gabriel very quickly goes to, well, you're going to have a son. You know, and so that this this human disappointment turning to hope, mm-hmm. you know. So how does Zechariah share that when he gets home, you know, and this hope that—and he can't even talk— <laughs> Right. <laughs> How do you think that conversation went? <laughs> I mean, and and they just continue to live their lives naturally, and then it takes on this incredible supernatural kind of intervention. Um, yeah, I love that. I love how it's just juxtaposed to this cosmic announcement from an angel, but it's brought all the way down to some village outside of Jerusalem, you know, um, where this little older couple actually— has a baby. And and I love, you're right, I love Elizabeth's response where she just goes in seclusion and takes this all so personally. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful story. And then, you know, you mentioned in our talk last week about how the Holy Spirit is so prominent on that first page in Luke's gospel. And it's just the truth, you know, that... Um, I think it's something like 11 times yeah, in the first four chapters. Yeah. I mean, Jesus isn't even on scene and it's Holy yeah. Spirit, Holy yes. Spirit, Holy Spirit. I mean, and, and that you know that the, and the, we'll we'll read later. You know how when Mary comes to visit her and and Elizabeth feels this movement in her womb, her son is rejoicing, is responding. He's in the presence of his Lord, and she's just overwhelmed with it. What a what a great disciple Elizabeth must have been. You know, I just it's I truly. love her. You know, and uh, yeah, just wow. It's just such a such a human thing that I think we can all identify with to be disappointed with God, and uh, and just disappointed in life, you know, and how those disappointments shape us, you know, and um, and for them, for them to be what I love about Elizabeth and Zechariah is their faithfulness in their journey, whether it was disappointment or, as I said Sunday, exhilaration. They were faithful all the way, you know, and I think that's a good word for us. I think sometimes. In our disappointments, we're drawn into God's presence because we feel desperate. Mm. But then we get to those times of exhilaration, and it's pretty easy to leave God behind. <laughs> yes, you know, because the the joy is so great, and we and we finally get whatever it is that we were hopeful um, for. And I think the example to me that I take away from them is don't don't leave God out of either one of those. You know, and I don't think they did. I think they rejoiced. Um, in the presence of the Lord, even when they were disappointed and when they were glad. So it's a great human story. My goodness. The whole it thing is. is a great human story. <laughs> really, you know. It really is. I mean, yeah. the people in the synagogue when Jesus mm. teaches mm-hmm. the reactions from mm-hmm. Elizabeth, from Zachariah, from his family members when he tries to name his son John. Yes. And they say, you, <laughs> you can't do that. That's not your name. <laughs> That's right. What's wrong with you? 
it's not tradition. That's right. Yeah, um, it's, just, it's just woven together, and, it, and that intersection. I think the one that the, what what um, fascinates me, and and I spend a lot of time thinking through and trying to understand, is that intersection of the divine and the human. That this cosmic drama is being played out on human stage, and so you have the hand of God at work, but somehow the hand of God is connected to the the choices that human beings are making. And and it and it just all somehow works, but it's just very mysterious to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I love to I love to think about it and reflect on it, read about it, write about it, preach about it. So. And providence is mysterious because mm. I mean, not only do mm. you have Jesus being born at the perfect time, you have the person who's going to prepare the way being born to mm-hmm. two people whose names collectively mean that God remembers His oath. I know it's awesome, isn't it? <laughs> 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 the confluence of things. Yes. And, I mean, I th- we talk about that Jesus came at the perfect time, but mm-hmm. if you're not familiar with the history of the intertestamental period, which mm-hmm. we just don't talk about That's a ton right. if you're not, you know, in a New Testament mm-hmm. scholarship class. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. the centuries between when we close the Old Testament and when we pick up the New Testament mm-hmm. are just chaotic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's what, four different sets of rule Uh until you get to Rome, Uh from the Babylonians to the Persians Uh to the Greeks, then Alexander Uh the Great's territory gets divided between his generals, and it's kind of Egyptian for a while. Uh And then Rome comes on the scene and stabilizes things. Uh Had Jesus come a century sooner? It would have been really challenging for the early church. Right. You know what I mean? Um, It just would have been. You're right. And then the thing about all the Jewish uh, machinations during that time, where you've you've got these revolts, you know, with the Maccabees and them trying to figure out with, you know, how to deal with with um, the various powers around them, you know, with the Persians and uh, I mean guys like uh, Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, and and then you got Judas Maccabees, and you got you got these guys that are, I mean, these are they were just powerful forces at work in that part of the world. For several hundred years, that we, we really don't talk much about, and and then uh, when Alexander the Great comes along, and just decides his meta narrative, we're all going to speak Greek. Yeah, this is uh, this culture obviously is superior, and and he and he accomplished that militarily. You know, I think a lot of times, I know we do call him Alexander the Great. I'm not sure he gets enough credit in the Christian world, though, just because of even though he was a uh, you know, uh, he could be unscrupulous in some ways. It's not a stretch to say that the New Testament would not have been possible without the work he did, though. Right. That I, I would probably will, be willing to make that statement that he, he, he laid just like John the Baptist. Maybe not just like John the Baptist, but John the Baptist prepared the way for sure. But Alexander the Great, he he set the stage, and then the Romans paved the way. <laughs> if I can say that. And uh, so you put that Greco-Roman world to, to, together with the Jewish messianic fervor. What a, what a moment in history that really was. It truly was. You know? and, and there's these, to me, that's that providence at work through the lives of human beings making all these various choices. So, yeah, it's a pretty amazing time in history. The intertestamental period is an amazing time in history to me. It is. We just we don't, we don't preach on it because our – we don't canonize those books yeah, in the Bible in the Protestant right. tradition. That's right. It's it's lost to us a little bit, but it's so important to our story, though, you know. And uh, and so I, I think with John the Baptist, even you know how he steps into this huge gap, and he becomes kind of this um, feet in both worlds prophet. You know, this transitional 
he's kind of like Samuel to me. You know, Samuel kind of played that role of of being this this judge, but also living in the, you know, kind of the beginning of the imperial life of Israel, where Samuel had to navigate being that transitional person to where, you know, you're led by judge. Well, now you're going to be led by king, and and so he played that pivotal role. Well, John the Baptist is that prophet. You know, he's he's an Old Testament prophet, but he's in a New Testament context, and so it's really fascinating person in history and his parents are i'm so glad his parents are woven into this story you know that we get to know a little bit about them and it just makes it just humanizes this cosmic drama which it needs to be humanized that's what the incarnation is it's, it's the humanizing of right. the cosmic drama you know so yeah so it all ties together to me it's powerful i love it it is i'm sure there are people listening uh, on various points of the theological spectrum within our church, <laughs> yeah. who are now going, but you said providence. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So is God in control of every a- human action? Right. Or right. What's well, free will's role in this? Right. And you know, it's, and, and of course, I'm not a Calvinist. So, um, but but you know, when you when you think about us historically, there's uh, as Protestant Christians, we we all have a certain. A connection to reform theology just because we're connected to the reformers themselves right. if you want to talk about it that way um but I'm not a calvinist in the sense that I believe in the five points of calvinism we've talked about that before um but I do believe God is sovereign and that somehow God's sovereignty and his providence are connected to the free will of man because the free will of man is actually to me one of the evidences of the providence of God it's a part of his his creative imagination and so these folks are making all these decisions and somehow this this ship, if you will, is headed in a direction, but it takes a lot of various turns along the way because of the decisions that humans make. And um, but God can still orchestrate things through them and still accomplish His person, His purpose. And I think that's why Luke, to me, uses some of the language he uses. You know, where where Jesus will say in Luke nine, "Well, the Son of Man must be handed over; he mm-hmm. must suffer; he must be handed over to these rulers." Well, that language. Is is providential kind of language, you know, and even even the disciples praying in Acts four, how they say we know the Jews and the Gentiles they all met in the you know to to make this happen, but this was all this was all the wisdom and the handiwork of God, you know. So um, there's somehow that connection of those two threads of of the human involvement in all this, but then again, the providence of God, and I would say that's still where we are, mm. you know. That's still where we are today, and uh, it hasn't changed. No, it has not. Now, the I believe the canon is closed. Okay, so sure, the scripture. I believe what it, what we have is sufficient, and that that scripture is not being written today. Okay, that's a, somewhat of a Very philosophical, important. theological position, but that's what I believe. But even though I would say that the handiwork of God and the great and the meta narrative is not complete yet, the redemptive work of God is still at work today. And it can be controversial when people try to think through, well, so how does that work? You know, like I remember um, a few years ago, uh, a tornado was headed toward the eastern coast. And Pat Robertson was was a little more at his heyday. He's older now, but he was a little more prominent in those days. And so he was on his television program, and he prayed for God to divert the tornado from hitting Virginia Beach. And and, it, and that happened. It, 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 hit, it landed somewhere else. Well, there were all these people joking about it and saying, well, well, why didn't you pray for the people, you know, in Maryland? Where was it it hit? <laughs> you know, and what kind of God diverts the – and I remember thinking, I don't necessarily ascribe 
to everything that Pat Robertson would ascribe to when, and all that. But the very fact that he believed that God is actually involved somehow in what's happening in this world, that's where he and I do agree, you know. And so I'm not no, I don't know how to apply that to a tornado, but I found it quite interesting that some of my colleagues were saying, man, Pat Robertson, what is he talking about? He's praying for God to divert a tornado. And I'm like— I think if you're a Christian and you're in the path of a tornado, speaking yeah. as someone who's done that, yeah. you pray for yeah. it to be diverted. That was going to say, I think God actually in, is involved in what happens in this world. So somehow there's this mysterious union, even today, Luke, that is being lived out. So that's why I'm, at the end of my sermon, I didn't really take a lot of time to talk about it. But what's God doing now? Well, he's doing what he's always done. He's at work and he's preparing and he's getting his world ready for whatever's going to happen next. And so... I look at my world today, and I know every generation of Christians has probably looked at things and said, hmm, this may be the last one, <laughs> you know, and because of X, Y, and Z. Well, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm not necessarily an end-of-time kind of prognosticator. That's not my, my uh, uh, I guess, my, my proclivity. But I do look for the hand of God. I, it's like John Stott used to say, you need to read your newspaper with your Bible in your hand. In other words, you need to be thinking, Sage advice. Yeah, what's God doing right now? How do I see the hand of God? Well, look at my world. I mean, there's, there's this incredible emergence of these massive religious movements. When, when, I, when I was taught, when I was, when I was uh, your age studying in seminary, I was doing my Ph.D. work, um, we were reading. Um, I, I was, I was, <clears throat> my Ph.D. was focused really in American Christianity the history of American Christianity. So in those days, the landmark book was a religious history of the American people written by Sidney Alstrom. Well, he wrote it in the late 60s, 69-ish, somewhere in there. Some things have happened since then. Mm -hmm. So he's on the campus of Yale. And so um, he's looking at America and it's on fire. Um, Kennedy's assassinated. His brother's assassinated. Martin Luther King's assassinated. All these protests on these campuses across America. So you come to this massive book. Alstrom's book is several inches thick. It's just, it was the standard in those days. Great research. Well, the last section is the the end of of uh, of um, uh, Protestantism, or the uh, what, what do you call it? The end of the basically it was the end of the influence of Christianity in America. I can't remember the exact title of his last section of his book. But his point being, from his vantage point, man, Christianity had, had a great run. You know, it had it had been awesome, and and now it's obviously waning. And so, well, that was his take. It was, he was looking at a world in his mind that had deteriorated, and so he was looking at what was happening around him. And his take on it was, well, the Lord's the Lord's hand is minimized now, and my goodness, look at all the chaos, and so. When you think about now, here we are. In his mind, religion was basically on its way out, not just Christian religion, but in general. And, and there were lots of – I mean, there's a sociologist named Peter Berger who in the 80s said religion's dead, secularization is coming. And he had to actually recant. Yes, that's right. Well, Alstrom didn't live long enough to do that. But, you know, like today – we're at a point today where now India is about to be the most populous nation in the world. Well, it's the most religious nation in the world. You know, it's it's what is it? Ninety nine percent religious. I mean, yeah, everybody I mean, it's in currently India. controlled by a religious political party and yeah. a, a nationalist one. But yeah, but they're but they're all they all have, generally speaking, not to be stereotypical, but generally speaking, 
Hindus have altars in their homes. An atheist yeah. in India. Yeah. So they're religious people. And it's about to be the largest nation in the world. So Alstrom, all due respect, religion was not waning. That's not really what was happening. That's what he thought at the time. While I'm looking at that going, hmm, isn't that interesting that there's this religious fervor all over the world now? The whole um, Islamic terrorist movement is rooted in a religious perspective. You know, it's guided by religious fervor. The the growth of Christianity in the Southern Hemisphere is, is it's a massively connected to more of a Pentecostal approach, if you will, to our family uh, theologically. But it is growing astronomically. Right. Um, Christianity may be declining in the United States and Europe, but it right. is exploding yeah. everywhere. Yeah, else. everywhere else it is. And so here I am looking at a world. That I don't know if this would be accurate. I'd probably have to do a little homework, but it might be more religious than it's ever been. <laughs> you know? So, what is that saying to me about what is God doing? Is God preparing us for something where He's going to take advantage of that religious fervor as it exists all over the world? There was a time where we thought, like you said, secularism had taken over. Well, that's not this day. You it's know, pluralism. It, yeah, yeah, it really is. And so, it's challenging to me. But it's causing me to think through my understanding of the machinations of God's hand at work, what, what at providence at work. It's, it's almost now you could make the argument philosophically and just say to anyone, well, you know, there's a, there's a certain longing in the spirit of a human being that finds expression religiously all over the world. And that's just easily documented. You can't argue that, well, no, people aren't, that, that's ridiculous. There's no draw to that. Well, yes, there is. <laughs> and it is everywhere. And so, well, so I'm trying to read my newspaper, so to speak, um, and with my Bible in my hand. And, uh, and so I believe God is right now preparing this world for the return of his son. And we're all a part of that, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth. We may not be on center stage, if you will, but we're in the drama, and somehow we're written into that script. And that's another thing I want to encourage our people in, is that your life, your living, you're living it in this drama. And, it, and your everyday life is connected to it somehow. And so every little victory, every, every place where the kingdom of God shines through you and there's restoration and of hope and there's the expression of the glory of God on display, well, all of that's a part of this cosmic drama, you know, that's, that's helping to bring about the ultimate redemption of everything that was lost and broken in the fall. So um, that's a beautiful thought to me. And that's one of the reasons that celebrating Christmas is so important because Jesus broke in to just show us you can do this. Right. You know, and obviously he's the son of God. <laughs> so he did it on a scale. We, but he did say to us, you're going to do greater things than I did. Mm -hmm. But there's going to be more of you, you know? And so um, I, I want our people to connect themselves to this meta narrative, you know? So. Yeah. Well, I, th I think about what you said that, you know, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they're ordinary people. I mean, I think we can, Easily get lost. Like, oh, Zachariah is a high priest. He's mm -hmm. much more special than him. He's one of 18,000. That's right. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's mm -hmm. important, mm -hmm. but right. one over 18,000 mm -hmm. is a very small fraction. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, Caiaphas couldn't have picked him out of a lineup. You know, right. you know what I mean? Not like he was in the inner circle of Israel. I mean, he was, like you said, one of 18,000 people that one one day in a lifetime gets to be in Jerusalem in the temple in the inner sanctum at that moment. So it was, uh, yeah. Yeah, so he's not the big cheese right. for Judaism mm -hmm. at that point in history. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth, Certainly women, not. Yeah, women just didn't mm -hmm. hold a lot of prominence in that society. Mm -hmm. So you have two very ordinary, mm -hmm. run-of-the-mill people. Mm -hmm. 
And we don't even know, was she in Jerusalem with him on this big day of his career? It, it doesn't. It, it doesn't say. No, we don't even know that she's even with him. <laughs> but we do know that we have two people who are not filled with the filled with the Holy Spirit as followers of Jesus are today, but the Holy Spirit is moving around them mm -hmm. and is at work in their lives, and they just faithfully respond, mm -hmm. even without the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's again, it's inspiring to me to watch them. And and next Sunday, um, you know, we're going to to look at Mary and and um, and see, and again, a, a an ordinary young lady, if I can say that respectfully about the Blessed Virgin Mary, but in the end of the day, at this moment in her life, you know, she's favored among women by God, but but certainly not by anybody else. I mean, it's, it's not, I don't know what what you would point to to say how she stood out. I don't know. That was, that's in the mind of God. But she's an ordinary person, you know? And um, so, yeah, that, this story is so, um, it's just so endearing. I think that's part of the attraction to it, that people can identify with it. Even people who aren't Christians, can read some of these stories and and be drawn into the drama, so to speak, you know, mm -hmm. so, which is a cool thing, you know, makes preaching easier. Oh, it does. <laughs> well, I mean, I just think about, you know, you have these two women who are key and we'll just use the metaphor of pregnancy because that's what this season's mm -hmm. about is mm -hmm. God brought something amazing into the world through these two women mm -hmm. in whom the Holy Spirit did not dwell, came mm -hmm. upon them, but did not dwell inside them. Mm -hmm. What can God bring into the world through you mm -hmm. in whom the Holy Spirit dwells? Right. That's a great word. And brother. bring in the kingdom to this world. Mm -hmm. And that and to me, that's part of the the promise of Jesus. You'll do greater things than this. Well, my goodness, because we're filled with the Spirit of God. And we're in a community of people that are filled with the Spirit of God. And so look at look at the good that can be brought into this world, and which I think has been by the people of God, you know. Um I, I think there are just so many examples of God's people responding to brokenness and hurt, pain, and bringing light and joy and hope and strength to it. And um, it's this is the hand of God of, of of improving the station in life in communities. And yeah, it's a, it's inspiring to me. And the Christmas story is just so much a part of that. I mean, it's it, it you know you're 400 years of silence really for the Jews. And then God just breaks. And it's a in. rough history. Oh, it's just so f hard for them. So many hard fought battles, military defeats. Most of them lost. Yeah, almost. Well, I guess all of them. <laughs> uh, temporary victories. Temporary, but you know, not long running. No, and just trying to govern themselves and rule that world that God had given them, that land. And it was just fraught, you know, and and so blood soaked, you know. Still, mm -hmm. sadly, still. Um, it's, it's almost like the blood in the ground cries out there in a very unique way. You know, it's just been, it's been saturated with so much blood through the years. And it was, it was that way back then though. And, um, I love how God breaks in, but he breaks in, 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 in this, in the lives of these ordinary people. That that's the beautiful thing. By about having it. babies. Yeah. <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> Something we all can understand and, 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 and appreciate. And, uh, yeah, the story is powerful to me. It's so simple, and yet it's so—it's just so connected to such a, a grand mystery of the, in the mind of God. I just—I um, love it. So this this time of year to me is a—you know—you have these moments where Christmas just comes alive. It's just that it happens to me every year. There's there's just a certain moment where it's like, yeah, this is this is it for me. It was Saturday. You know, I told the story to the church. I, I was trying to get into game day, and the traffic was crazy, and I came here and. You know, I find myself in the sanctuary and just start imagining all these people and 
that I know here that I love and care for and believe in and hope for the best for them. And, you know, next thing you know, I'm just going pew to pew and thinking about them and know where they sit. And so Christmas happened for me Saturday in the sanctuary, just where I felt, yeah, this is why we do this right here. You know, this is Jesus brings hope to these people. These are my people. And mm. it's where I live, you know. So it's kind of my Zechariah and Elizabeth moment happened for me in the sanctuary Saturday, <laughs> you know, in a real sweet way for me. So well, yeah. thank you for sharing that mm-hmm. with us. Yeah, it was. Uh, but, you know, when you've been here, I mean, I've been here 21 years. So I've lived a lot of life with people and I don't know everything. And many of them bring private pain into this place. I know that and, and burdens that I don't know or understand. But I know I know a lot of them. You know, and and I found myself just sitting in a pew thinking about, you know, someone I know, they've lost their husband. They used to sit right here together, and now she sits here by herself. What's that like? You know, and Mm -hmm. just couldn't help it, just praying over them and thinking. And then people who've had great moments, you know, families who've just had weddings. And and again, I know where they sit, and I just rejoiced in their joy because I know how excited they are about about their kids and uh, folks that have gotten new jobs and so it was a it was an interesting um, emotional journey through the sanctuary, <laughs> but uh, um, but I'm grateful for it, you know. So yeah, and it was and it was reaffirming to me when I stood up in the pulpit Sunday morning and looked out, and there they all are, you know. And um, so both services, you know, and uh, that's why we can't have just one service because they'll be sitting on top of each other because they have their own seats, you know. So we have to we have to separate them out. <laughs> so anyway. But it was a, it was a powerful time for me, and just a, to me a reaffirmation of just the beauty of this season of the year, you know. And uh, I love it so, and love to love to preach it, you know. It is a beautiful time of year. Mm-hmm. So, well, well, we did it. We did it. Thank you for listening. <laughs> uh, next week we're talking about Mary. That's right. Yeah. So did. that'll be fun. Yep. Well, thank you, Luke. Thank you all for listening, and we'll have you with us next week. listening to the Tell Me More podcast today. You can subscribe to this podcast on your app of choice, or you can visit us at fbca.org to find out more information about the podcast and our church. Thanks for listening.